before I read the psalm, I want to uh, say this for the people that may be watching the sermon who don't watch the Prophecy Update, if there are any of them. Uh, we lost a very special person in our congregation today. Uh, she's a person I've personally known since seventh grade, and um, she's been a very faithful attendee at the Superior Word and just a, a, a wonderful person to all of us. And we're all having a difficult day because of our loss, but uh, her name's Kelly Carlin. And uh, so in remembrance of her now, we'll read the 23rd Psalm, and then we will get into our, uh, our uh, sermon for the day. Psalm 23, this is a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And uh, the only thing that we can mourn right now is for those of us who are left behind. But for Kelly, she is with the Lord, dwelling in his house, and that will be forever. So it's really wonderful to think, at least from that perspective, the comfort that we have as Christians, knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Our um, verses today, our sermon verses, are Exodus 12, starting in verse 37 to the end of the chapter. And um, the uh, sermon is entitled, The Exodus. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside of the house, nor shall you break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, according to their armies. Today we finally come to Israel's wonderful moment of release. For generations, they had been afflicted and burdened by Egypt. And for the final year or so, they had seen Egypt suffer great, great punishment from the Lord in order to weaken their resolve and also to magnify the Lord in the eyes of the people. The Passover is come and gone, 
The firstborn of the Egyptians have died, and now the time to depart has come. A week before typing this sermon, my wife found a ceramic plate that my grandmother made depicting the time of the Passover and the Exodus out of the land. We already have many of her biblical works of art here at the Superior Word, but now we have one more right over there. It's here on display in his church and among his people during these Exodus sermons. In the depiction is Moses carrying his staff and a lamb. There he stood with the precious lamb that would be the means of their redemption, picturing the true lamb who redeemed Israel and who continues to redeem his people 3,500 years later. Hallelujah to the precious lamb of God, our Lord Jesus. Through him, we have been united to the commonwealth of Israel. Our text verse today comes from Ephesians chapter 2. It is verses 19 through 22. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Our sermon today is going to be a tad bit longer than most, but just a tad. I'm sure that everyone here will be home in time for dinner tonight. But I hope you will truly enjoy some of the wonderful insights which are given to us in these precious words. And you cannot search out the word unless you open it and read it. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first of three thoughts today is from Ramses to Sukkot. It's verses 37 through 39. Verse 37, then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses. Verse 37 through 42 in our look into the Exodus today are so filled with connections to other portions of the Bible that to fully plumb the depths of what is involved in them would take many, many long hours, and yet we would still miss much. The first portion of verse 37 is given to show us the literal locations of the Exodus until the first stopping point. But the names have been selected by God to show us something more, something future. The entire scope of the plagues on Egypt was given to show us what really occurred in history. But it was also given to show us parallels and pictures of Israel's salvation in the end times. Now, instead of the name Goshen being used, it says the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses. Why would the Lord interchange these names as he has both in Genesis and in Exodus unless he is trying to show us a picture of something else? Goshen means drawing near or approaching. That name is no longer used because it no longer applies. The time is not approaching. It has arrived. Israel is delivered and so Ramses is used. The name Ramses means son of the sun or child of the sun. In Psalm 84, the Lord is represented by the sun. Here's what it says. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he uphold, withhold from those who walk uprightly. In Malachi 4, Jesus is called the son of righteousness. And that passage is one which appears to telescope between his first and his second advent. Listen to how these verses mirror what occurred during the plagues on Egypt and now their freedom from it. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and yet and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. 
that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Ramses, rather than Goshen, is used here because it is speaking of the state of those who have come near to salvation, to those who are now saved. In the end times, God cares for Israel during the tribulation, right through until their final reunion with Christ. Israel is the son of the son, Jesus. This is evidenced by the Lord's declaration, which we saw back in Exodus 4.22, where he called Israel his firstborn son. They were called this when Moses, picturing Christ the Redeemer, was told to speak to Pharaoh, the afflictor of Israel. What is being seen here is perfectly detailed, not just of actual events of the past, but of actual events coming in Israel's future. The name Ramses is used here to show us that Israel is the son of the son, exactly as the Bible has described them both. Israel is the S-O-N of Jesus, the S-U-N. The changing of the name from Goshen to Ramses is exacting, and it is purposeful. It is given to help us weave together these amazing patterns of redemptive history. Verse 37 continues, to Sukkot. The name Sukkot means tabernacles. In the life of Jacob, after meeting his brother Esau, he traveled to a place with the same name, Sukkot, and he stayed there. That was a picture of the sixth dispensation of redemptive history, the age of the Gentile church, the age of grace. It pictured God dwelling or tabernacling in man. The mentioning of Israel traveling from Ramses to Sukkot is given for the exact same reason. The Israelites have just observed the Passover, having applied the blood of the lamb and having been saved from the plague. These people now and the places they travel to picture those who have been brought out of the tribulation period. They are those who have been saved by the blood of the lamb and are brought out of spiritual Egypt. The Holy Spirit now dwells in them, just as he did for those in the church age. The pictures are exact when compared to the book of Revelation, and the names here are given to show us this. This is alluded to in the 105th Psalm with these words. He also brought them out with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among his tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. The cloud and the fire picture the presence of the Holy Spirit among God's people. It is where the Lord has spread his cloud of fire over them for a covering. Verse 37 continues, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. The numbers here are a general counting, rounded down to the nearest 100,000. This same general number is given by Moses again in Numbers 11 verse 21 when speaking to the Lord. But in Numbers 1, an exact counting of the people is made. There it says this, So all who are numbered of the children of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war in Israel, all who were numbered were 603,550. This number includes those 20 and above who could go to war. However, this did not include the Levites of this age. They were counted later in Numbers chapter 4 and they were totaled at 8,580, between 30 years old and 50 years old. And so the total number of men of fighting age was about 613,000 men. These numbers did not include the children, 
the older people or the women. In all, many scholars generally reckon them about two million people that went out at the Exodus. Interestingly, there are about six million Jews in the land of Israel right now, and the Bible shows us what will happen to them in the book of Zechariah. Listen carefully. And it shall come to pass in all the land, this is during the tribulation period, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. The approximate number of Jews who departed at the Exodus is essentially the same number who will make it through the tribulation period if it is in the near future, as I suspect it will be. God is repeating the numbers of history just as he is repeating the symbolism of the names and places. The numbers here are in no way unimaginable when compared to the arrival of Jacob, which was back in Genesis 46 and then re recorded again in Exodus chapter 1. In those genealogies, 70 people are named, only 70. However, during those sermons, it was noted that there would have been hosts and hosts of servants who would have arrived with them in Egypt. Over the years in Egypt, those servants would have been assimilated into the group known as Israel, just as was seen in the life of Jacob upon his return to Canaan from Padan Aram with two companies. The faith of Israel constituted the nationality just as the nationality constituted the faith. And there is abundant biblical precedent for this, both in the Bible, but also extra biblically in recorded history. The numbers and growth are not only acceptable, they are exacting. God has recorded them not as hyperbole, but as a fact of history. And having said this, because I'm a firm believer that every word of the Bible is 100% true, Many liberal scholars will do their very best to dismiss the biblical record that we're looking at right here, stating that the Exodus account is a dishonest fabrication. Here are what the adults, I, I'm sorry, I mean the uh, scholars at Cambridge say. They say the figures do not come to us from eyewitnesses. And tradition in the course of years greatly exaggerated the number of Israelites at the Exodus. So it's all just a fabrication and a lie, people. All right, if your commentary reflects this general sentiment, I want you to put a big, fat, red X right through it. The numbers are both possible and reliable. Verse 38, a mixed multitude went up with them also. This is a continued fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham way back in Genesis 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This mixed multitude comprises anyone who is not of the stock of Israel. They may have been Egyptians or people of other ethnicities who lived in Egypt, serving Egypt, just as the Hebrews did. They saw the opportunity to join with Israel and to follow the God of Israel, and guess what? They took it. There are a few possibilities as to their numbers. The first is that they are actually included in the number of Israelites in the census that I mentioned earlier. This would make sense because Moses will later say that the number of capable males under him is the same as we see in this chapter. The second option is that they are simply an innumerable number that came along and are not included in the census of Israel. At least in picture of future events, that's probably a more appropriate fit. The third option is that they are mentioned separately to picture a separate number, but they're actually counted in the total during the census. Thus, the reality of the numbers is correct for all, 
but the picture of who they represent is maintained. Whichever is correct, they are mentioned as they are for a reason. But before I give that reason, I want to read you Numbers 11, verse 4. It says, now the mixed multitude, which sounds like what we're talking about right here, the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? Scholars almost unanimously agreed that this group mentioned in Numbers 11, verse 4 is the same group as mentioned right here in Exodus. They call them names. They say they set a bad example for Israel, and they give generally other negative views on this group of people. And these scholars are completely wrong. The word used to describe the people here in Exodus is erev. It means literally a mixture. It is the same term used in Nehemiah 13.3 to indicate foreigners. The word in Numbers 11 to describe those miscreants is asafsuf. It means rabble. And it comes from the word asof, which means storehouse. And from that, we get the idea of a collection of like-minded things. There is no reason to assume that this rabble in Numbers 11.4 was the mixed multitude that we're seeing here in Exodus. Instead, it is identified as containing a group of like-minded people who are all a bunch of whiners, regardless of whether they were from Israel or whether they were foreigners. In picture, this mixed multitude is mentioned now for a very specific reason. They are those who will join Israel during the tribulation period from all people groups around the world. They will enter into the millennial reign of Christ with Israel. And they are mentioned in Revelation chapter 7 and then again in Revelation chapter 19. I'll read you about them from Revelation 7. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all of the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The same mixture of people is spoken of in the book of Zechariah. Here's what it says there. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from every language of the nations shall grab the sleeve of a Jewish man saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. They're mentioned here in Exodus in this vague way, and they're mentioned as simply a great multitude in Revelation is given to show us that in the tribulation period, many many will come to a saving knowledge of the Lord by joining with the people of the Lord, Israel. This picture is exact. Verse 38 continues, and the flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. Along with the people, all of the flocks and the herds of the people departed with Israel. It was these animals which Pharaoh refused to let go of and which resulted in the ninth plague of darkness. But after the final plague, Pharaoh simply exhorted the people to go, and they did with all of their possessions, including the millions and millions of animals that they possessed and which he failed to confiscate. Flocks and herds in the Bible are mentioned a multitude of times to reflect people groups. These animals are probably given here as a picture of the nations who are going to be gathered together after the tribulation period for judgment. You have the sheep goats, sheep nations, and the goat nations who are mentioned in Matthew 25. Verse 39, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt. Two different words are used to describe the bread here. The first is matzot, which is what we eat every week at the uh, Lord's Supper. That's unleavened bread. The second is ugot, which is the cake itself. 
The International Standard Version does an excellent job of translating this verse. It says, they baked the dough that they brought out of Egypt into thin cakes of unleavened bread. In the Middle East, it's common for the people to make bread by simply mixing together flour with water and then cooking it. If no oven is available, they'll take and put the cakes into ashes of a wood fire and cover it over with the embers and let it cook for a little while. It's very simple what they do when they live out in the desert. 39 continues, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. The bread had been prepared in advance as it often was, but when the call went out to depart, they simply picked up and left joining the ranks of the people who were in this great exodus out of Egypt. The bread was left unleavened, and it was carried in the kneading troughs covered by a garment to keep it pure. The Bible's specificity in this verse concerns the picture that it is making, that of the feast of unleavened bread. In the church age, Paul calls us just that, unleavened. He says, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. This same picture now extends to those who went through the tribulation period and came out of it through their faith in Christ. Thus, they have become a part of the true Passover and are also a new lump, truly unleavened. Again, the symbolism is exact. That which has been will be again. and That which has been done will be done again. And there is nothing new under the sun. History continues to repeat itself in the Exodus, in the church, and in the tribulation saints. It is showing us that God is consistent and his means of salvation, which is by grace through faith, is a unified concept which transcends all ages and all dispensations. Israel departed from Ramses to Sukkot, finally free from the bondage of Egypt. The first leg of the journey is worthy of note because there the power of Pharaoh from them is stripped. Out of Egypt in the darkness of the night, and yet a full moon to help guide their way. Out from Egypt by the moon's soft light, continuing their walk throughout the next day. At Sukkot, unleavened bread they did eat, the people having been purified, acceptable to the Lord. There at Sukkot they enjoyed freedom, so sweet, just as was promised, so he kept his word. Our second thought is precisely timed, verses 40 through 42. Verse 40, now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. This is surely one of the most mistranslated and most misunderstood verses in the entire Bible. Listen to the following two translations and see how they differ. The NIV says, now the length of the time of the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. Now the King James Version, now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. If the translation says unambiguously that they dwelt in Egypt for 430 years, as the New King James Version does and as the NIV does, that translation is wrong. The King James Version uniquely offsets the words who dwelt in Egypt, and so it can mean something entirely different. The reason why this is important is that they did not dwell in Egypt 430 years. The facts revealed in the Bible, if you've been following through all of the Genesis and Exodus sermons, show that they actually dwelt in Egypt 215 years. At least the NIV and some other translations footnote that other manuscripts say that they dwelt in Canaan and in Egypt instead of just saying Egypt. 
And this is the correct rendering. It should say Canaan and Egypt. The reason why these words were changed for the Masoretic text may be sinister. They're to hide a 215-year period in order to obfuscate the truth that Jesus is the Christ. By hiding these years, the Jews have hid from the eyes of their people who he truly is. The 430 years actually goes from the time of Abraham all the way until the time of the Exodus. An argument against this, though, is that the term sons of Israel didn't exist at Abraham's time, and therefore the words cannot mean from him until the Exodus. But this is the Bible's way of using an all-inclusive term for the people of Israel who lived in him before they were born. These are our difficulties. They're not the Bible's. Following the timeline as we did through Genesis, following the promise made to Abraham, following the patterns laid down in the Bible, and following the words of the New Testament from the hand of Paul all lead to an understanding that it was 430 years from the Lord's promise to Abraham until the Exodus. Referring to the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, says this, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, meaning from the time of Abraham, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. Paul knew that it was 430 years. But after Paul's time, the Masoretes went in and changed the text. Let me finish this verse. For if the promise, if the inheritance of the law is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. That promise was made to him when he was 75 years old in the year 2084 from the creation of the world. That was 430 years after the flood of Noah. Paul tells us that another 430 years after that, the law was received at Mount Sinai, which is just 50 days from the Exodus. In the life of Jacob, he traveled with his family to be with Joseph in Egypt exactly 215 years after the promise to Abraham in the year 2,299 from the creation of the world. The people of Israel then spent another 215 years in Egypt and are now departing in the year 2,514 from the world's creation. God has laid out his, the history of the world in the pages of the Bible with absolute perfection allowing us to feel perfectly secure that we have placed our eggs in just the right basket. Verse 41, And it came to pass on the, at the end of the 430 years on the very same day. There's no reason to assume that the term on the very same day isn't speaking of the exact day, meaning that the promise made to Abraham, which came about on that same day as the Exodus 430 years earlier. If so, as it seems to imply, then that promise was made to him exactly 154,800 days earlier. Such precision is found elsewhere in the Bible. And so there is no reason to assume that it means anything other than this. The same day that Abraham was given his great promise 430 years earlier is the same day that Israel was freed, as we see in the continuation of verse 41. It came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. The word here for armies is sabah. It is often translated as hosts, as in armies united for warfare. This is the third time it is used to describe the people of Israel as a united force under the Lord. 
the people are, in this sense, being portrayed as those who will in the future fight the Lord's battles. If one thinks of the Lord as their head, then it takes on the picture of a great warrior who's leading his armies out as he goes. It is not in defeat or fear, but in honor and bravery that they are now leaving the land of Egypt. The picture for the church should be no less wonderful. The Passover has just taken place, picturing Christ's death on the cross. In that act, Christ has led out his people from the bondage of slavery, not in defeat or fear, but in a spirit of freedom and honor. Paul alludes to this in Romans chapter 8 with these words, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Every time that a person receives the gospel message and trusts Christ, they participate in the same freedom that all others have who have been redeemed by the Lord. We have been brought from bondage into sonship. We go from being enemies of God to being united with him as one of his innumerable hosts. Verse 42, it is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. The words night of solemn observance in Hebrew are lel shimurim. This word shimur is used only two times in the entire Bible and both of them are in this verse. And it is in the plural as in night of watchings or much observance. These observances are said to be to the Lord. And the reason is given explicitly as for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. If we can equate these words with a New Testament passage, I would say that Colossians chapter 1 fits this quite perfectly. It says there, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Paul's Jewish heritage allowed him to see with exacting detail the parallels between the Passover feast that he had celebrated year after year and the fulfillment of that observance in Christ. Unfortunately for the Jewish people in general, this rite has become less about the Lord and more about a cultural observance. But every time a Jew comes to know their Lord, and when the corporate body of Israel comes to know him some wondrous day, Great things occur as they come to realize the true significance of these mandated observances. Verse 42 going on, This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. There's an emphasis in these words which calls out for remembrance. Everything about them is intended to draw attention to the reader to simply pay heed. This is that night of the Lord. It is to be a solemn observance. It is for all of the children of Israel, and it is to be throughout their generations. And yet, there are words which only find their true meaning in what they picture, the cross of Christ and the freeing of his people from the yoke which has bound them. Ellicott makes the connection simple for us to see with these words. It is when a yoke heavier than that of Egypt was broken off from our necks. Does everybody remember that day? I do. And a land better than that of Canaan was set before us, where our beloved Kelly is right now. That was a temporal deliverance, he says, to be celebrated in their generations. This is an eternal redemption to be celebrated world without end. It was a long time, 430 years, from Abraham until the exodus out of Egypt, the land. But when it came, there were certainly many cheers 
as the people beheld the marvel of the Lord's powerful hand. And for all generations thereafter it came to be that people would each year on that night recall the marvel of the Exodus and of the Lord's majesty, a Passover cedar each year at the nightfall, a solemn observance for the children of Israel, a time to remember the great acts of the Lord, a time to relate the story to the next generation as well, to repeat this marvelous account recorded in his word. Our third thought is one law for all, verses 43 through 51. Verse 43, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, from the text, it would appear that these instructions were given at Sukkot after the Passover. However, it could be that they were given at Mount Sinai when the law was received, or they could have been given to them prior to the Passover and that foreigners participated in the Passover. Thus, everything from verse 11 until now has been an insert. And I believe that the last option is correct. It would mean that the mixed multitude that left with Israel was circumcised before they partook of the Passover and departed at the Exodus. This would fit with what will be said in the coming verses concerning their status within the corporate body. And it would also be another reason to think why they selected the lamb five days earlier. It was to give them time to heal from the circumcision. No matter what, the instructions are given to ensure the meal would not be defiled through inappropriate observance. Verse 41 going on. This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. So you see, if this was actually given to them before the Passover, then they know a foreigner can't eat it. They're going to have to be circumcised. The first instruction is that no foreigner is to eat it. The term is ben nechar or son of a stranger. It's a general term which includes all who were aliens to the people and to the covenant of Israel. However, if they were brought into the people and the covenant by circumcision, then they would no longer be considered strangers. This is often violated today when Jews invite Gentiles over to share in the Passover. We had Burke tell us his neighbor did that just last year or so. The Passover was intended only for those who were a part of the redeemed of the Lord. This then equates directly to the Lord's Supper. There is absolutely no point in a non-believer coming forward because it has no true significance for them. The intent of the Lord's Supper is to proclaim his death until he comes. If someone hasn't received what his death signifies, then why would they come forward? It makes no sense for them to participate. Verse 44, but every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. The second instruction concerns servants. If a person obtained a servant with money and became their property, according to Genesis 17, verses 12 and 13, they were to be circumcised. There were no exceptions to this. It is implied that if they refused circumcision, they were to be cut off from the congregation. Once they were brought into the house and circumcised in that manner, they had all of the rights of a citizen of Israel, although they were still the property of their owner. If nothing else, this shows that it is a dedication to the Lord and to the covenant which brings one into Israel, not natural descent from Abraham. This is especially true in the world today because there are different sects of Jews throughout the world in different traditions. You've got the Sephardic Jews. You've got the Ashkenazi Jews in particular. They can both claim title to the nation of Israel. However, they cannot claim to be the true Israel if they are not circumcised in their hearts to the Lord Jesus. Therefore, until they call out to him, they are not truly completed Jews of good standing in the biblical sense as members of Israel. 
Verse 45, a sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In contradistinction to an owned slave, a person might have a day laborer or, you know, the person's a foreigner and they're just coming in to do work for him. Or he may have someone staying at his house who was a sojourner for just a given amount of time. Such a person was not allowed to participate. Verse 46, in one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside of the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. The general consensus for the reason for these words is that it points to unity. It is through the lamb that the people were united at the Passover. And it is through Jesus that believers are united in our freedom from the bondage of sin. Therefore, none of the flesh was to be taken outside of the house. Further, none of the bones were to be broken, again, implying unity. The flesh was eaten, but the bones were to remain whole. This unity of the bones points directly to the unity of the church universal, which is found in Christ and in him alone, not in a denomination, not in somebody's screwy theology that says that only we are saved and nobody else. It is in Christ and in faith in Christ alone where we are united to the church universal. The Passover lamb of the Hebrew nation was made to correspond to the antitype which he fulfills. The completion of this picture is found anticipating Christ in Psalm 34 verse 20 and is realized in John 19, which speaks of Jesus Christ on the cross. Here's what it says. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. He died prior to the need for the soldiers to break his bones in order to expedite his death. This was anticipated 1,500 years earlier in the giving of these instructions. Verse 47, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. As there is unity in the house pointing to unity in Christ, there was to be unity throughout the congregation. Again, pointing to unity in Christ. There is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Verse 48, and when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. This verse right here would perfectly explain the number of 600,000 people being called Israel leaving from during the Exodus. Anybody that wanted to participate, all they had to do was be circumcised, take it, and they are now Israel. This is plain on its surface, and it follows through in many examples in the Bible. When a stranger sojourned among the Israelites and wanted to participate by keeping the Passover, they were to circumcise any males, and then they were allowed to keep it. And from that point on, they were to be incorporated into the people of Israel with no further distinctions among them. In addition to accounts which follow this in the Bible, there's extra biblical evidence for this as well. Speaking of the descendants of Edom, known as the Idumeans in New Testament times, we find in the writings of the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus that in 129 BC, John Hyrcanus subdued all the Idumeans and he permitted them to stay in that country if they would circumcise their genitals and make the use of the laws of the Jews. And they were so desirous of living in the country of their forefathers that they submitted to the use of circumcision and the rest of the Jewish ways of living, at which time therefore this befell them, that they were hereafter no other than Jews. If we're to take this in a New Testament context, it shows that we cannot withhold the gospel from any person or any group of people and exclude them from Christian fellowship. 
This follows through in position, in status, in color, in ethnic origin, amount of wealth, or for any other reason. Jesus is the Christ of the nations, and he is to be open to all who will receive him. No non-believer carries the benefits of Christ, and no believer is excluded from those benefits, which are his alone to endow upon his faithful. Verse 49, one law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. One law is given for all people within the covenant community, regardless of their birth status. Again, it points to unity of the people, which is derived from being joined to the Lord, not from being joined through a birthright, The birthright is from God to his adopted children without regard to their genetic makeup. Now, there would seem to be some exceptions to this which are found in Deuteronomy 7. You probably don't care about this, but somebody's going to email, so I'm uh, anticipating that and I'm saying this now. It says in Deuteronomy 7 that there are certain people groups who are to be utterly destroyed and with whom no intermarriages or covenants were to be allowed. But, but... People from those very groups are found later in the Bible as participants in the provisions of this verse. One, for example, is Uriah the Hittite. He was the general of David in the army of uh, uh, Israel, and his wife, Bathsheba, became a wife of David. Verse 50, thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. The law was given from the Lord, and the people complied The inclusion of these words seems to imply that the instructions were, in fact, given prior to the Exodus. But they have been recorded now to show that those who came out as a mixed multitude were considered as a part of the whole. All were now reckoned as Israel. Thus, the counting of the people in the census which is coming is inclusive of all of them being members of the individual tribes. They are one united people. Verse 51, our last verse of the day, the last verse of the chapter. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. This verse repeats the substance of verse 41. It shows us that it is the Lord who brought Israel out. He did it on a precise schedule, that it included his redeemed people, and that they were redeemed from the bondage of Egypt and that they were brought out according to their armies, in other words, in ranks and in dignity. Everything about this closing verse shows that there was a plan, and that plan was worked out exactly as it should have been, including the assimilation of non-Israelites into the body of Israel. It is then a picture of the greater assimilation of the church, which now exists, and of the assimilation of the tribulation saints of the future, All are one in the body of Christ, who is the Lord. We are, through the blood of Christ, brought into the commonwealth of Israel. We are saved unto the ages of ages. God's love for his children is an eternal love, because we are in Christ, his Son. He could no less love us than he loves his own beloved Jesus. If you've never received that great love, which can only come through God's adoption of you as his child, I would ask that you give me just another moment to tell you how you can participate in it today. Jesus Christ came out of the eternal realm. He stepped out of eternity and into our temporal space, and he lived in garments of flesh just like you and I did. He was born without Adam's inherited sin. He lived under the law. He lived perfectly under the law without ever sinning, 
and he gave his life up as a provision under the law, which is the law of substitution. An animal was slain to take away the sins of the people under the law. Jesus Christ became that picture, that animal, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of all of the world. And the substitution is made by faith and by faith alone. The Bible says it is by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. We can never go before God and say, I did this or I did that in order to merit God's favor. All we can do is say, God, I'm a sinner. I've inherited sin. I've got so much sin heaped up in my life that I just can't ever get back to you. I can't go and undo what I did, but I know that Jesus can do that because he came out of the infinite. And so I put my trust in Jesus Christ and his satisfaction of my sin debt. Then to prove it, he came out of the grave. The wages of sin is death. You die because you have sin. But death couldn't hold Jesus because he had no sin of his own. So the great thing is that your sin is nailed to his cross. It's dead with him. And then you are in him when he came out, the sinless son of God. You are now positionally sinless. Yes, we're going to fall and we're going to commit sins, but they are not counted against us. When we come to Christ, our sin is not counted against us any longer. But you have to come to Christ. You can't say, I'm, you know, I think Jesus is a good guy and he'll forgive me. It's not going to happen. You have to come to him and you have to ask him to forgive you. And then from that point on, he'll give you his spirit and he will help you to live the perfect life if you just stay close to him. And when you do fall, you just, Jesus, I'm sorry. And he'll forgive you because you're already forgiven. It's already a done deal. Come to Christ. Be forgiven. Be cleansed of your sins. Be a member of this corporate body of Israel, which stretches back 3,500 years. Our closing verse today, once again, comes from Ephesians chapter 2. It's verses 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Think of all the mixed multitude in Egypt. But now in Christ Jesus, you were once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. They were redeemed from Egypt. They must have gone through the Passover. They were redeemed by God. Wonderful stuff from a great God who would even look on Gentiles like you and me. Next week, I will have somebody else preaching the sermon. I uh, have something to do next Saturday, and I'm sorry, next Sunday. And so uh, Paul Stoll is going to step in and graciously fill in for the sermon. And uh, please bring a friend, because it's a good time to have somebody new come to the church when they don't have to look at that crazy-looking guy. And uh, then maybe they'll want to stay the next week and get suckered into living through me. And then when Paul gets back, I'm going to get into Exodus chapter 13. It'll be verses 1 through 10. And it is emulating Christ as our head. The sermon is entitled, The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay? And uh, I'd like to tell you that the uh, Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. He did that for somebody in this congregation yesterday. And he, you do that. You call on him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Our poem is called The Exodus. The children of Israel then journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot. About 600,000 men on foot besides children, certainly a host of considerable note. A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock with them did go. 
And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, for in a hurried exodus they were caught, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves, such they did not accumulate. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel, who lived in Egypt, 430 years was the spell before Pharaoh finally flipped. And it came to pass at the end, finally at last, of the 430 years, on that very same day it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt, surely with great cheers. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt, according to his word. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance in participations for all the children of Israel, as they have heard throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the Passover's ordinance. No foreigner shall eat it thereon. You must adhere to this observance. But every man's servant who is for money bought, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it as you have been taught. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. There you will partake. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor any of its bones shall you break. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it according to my word. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, lest he and all his male males be circumcised too. And then let them come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. From this you shall learn and understand. One law shall be for the native born and also two for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus did all the children of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did, as the word does tell. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies, as the Lord in his word did foretell. Great things the Lord has done for his people, those who are brought into his own fold. They come from every nation to worship under the steeple. We are the redeemed of the Lord, as his word foretold. It is because of Jesus, hallelujah to his name. God loved us enough to send his son to rescue us. And now let our lips his holy name proclaim. Yes, for all the ages of ages, we will proclaim Jesus. Thank you, O God, for precious Jesus, our Lord. And thank you for revealing to him, him to us in your holy word. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lamb of God who took away our sins. Thank you for our Lord Jesus. Thank you for the eternal hope that we have and that I'm jealously uh, con considering that one of our own went to be with just yesterday. We thank you for the life of Kelly Carlin. We thank you that we were so blessed to have her in our lives. We thank you for the comfort that you will give to her mother and to her daughter who are here today and for all of those who loved her and will miss her. But we're so grateful to know that she is the redeemed of the Lamb, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that, oh, I just, I, I can't use the word envy, Lord. We're not to do that, but I am so, so wishing to be by your side as well. We're grateful. We're grateful to you for this promise, this sure promise. And we long for that day when the trump is sounded and we'll all rise together to meet you in the air. And thus we'll all be together with you for all eternity. What a great day that will be. Thank you for this promise. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you for all you've done for us. How great you are. How great you are, O oh God. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. With these elements, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
and he came. Kelly used to ask me time and again, you need to explain that more often because new people come into the church. She, she always wanted me to tell the story about the bread and the wine. And so I'll do that today. The matzah bread is very thin. It's not puffed up at all. It's a picture of Christ. There's no leaven in it, no um, yeast. And leaven in the Bible is a picture of sin. It causes us to puff up, and it also causes corruption. Eventually the broad bread will corrupt quicker because of the leaven in it. And so this is a picture of the body of the Lord Jesus who had no sin and was completely perfect without any corruption. And if you look closely at it in the light, you can see all these little holes through there, a picture of him being pierced for our transgressions and our, our iniquities. And if you look at it the way it was cooked, it's got stripes on it, picturing his back where he was beaten for our sins, our iniquities, even Kelly's. And she knew this. And maybe that's why she wanted me to explain this all the time. It's She's like me. She wants to remember her sin in the presence of the Lord and to live that perfect life, attempt to be that unleavened bread that we saw today and we're going to see in detail in two weeks. Be like this as a picture of him and to live our lives for him. So This is a picture of the body of the Lord. And then, of course, we have the wine, which is a picture of his blood, which was shed for us. It's what causes the ability for our sins to be transferred to him. The substitution I talked about, the atonement. We go to the cross with him, and our sin dies there on the cross, and it is put away for all eternity. And all God sees now is us through his son Jesus. He sees our sinless perfection. If that is not the most amazing thing on the face of the planet, I can't think of anything else. Anything that is so amazing is the fact that God would accept somebody like me. Imagine that, that he would do that, but he sees me as perfect and holy because of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah to that Lamb of God. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and he would have given thanks over it. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei pori agafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body.
body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we can have these two precious ladies come up first today. Sarah, you want to come up and have the Lord's table? Jesus Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the wonderful chance to come into your presence and to partake of this table week by week, to remember what our Lord did for us, and to remember where it is leading us. Thank you for that. Thank you for this sure hope we possess. All hail to you, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 